I just got off the phone. One of the Stonebrook Six, one of my best friends in the world, was killed last night. His husband, Anthony, called me, voice raw with fatigue and emotion. He said that the police didn't know the details of what happened yet, but last night, Elsa's remains were found in the parking garage of the building where he works. Where he worked. They told Anthony that they would have thought it was an explosion, but there were no signs of any fire or damage to anything other than Ellis himself. They would have said it was an obvious murder, but they don't know how someone could crush and dismember a human being that thoroughly without heavy machinery, much less spread him across the 12-foot ceiling of floor 3B in that monolithic parking structure like a thick layer of chunky peanut butter. Anthony was crying again by that point, so I assumed I had just heard him wrong. Then he repeated it. Then he repeated it, his voice coming in hitching gasps. A co-worker had come out just a few minutes after Alice to find my friend dripping and plopping back onto the relatively clean concrete below where he had been pressed into the ceiling. Anthony said that the only way they knew it was him initially was due to the security footage of him going out towards his car. The video cut out as he approached the area, and when it returned, the timestamp showed 30 seconds had passed without footage. The girl who found him was out less than five minutes later, and no one else had entered or left the garage in that time so far as they could tell. Crushed personal effects and initial blood work confirmed it was him. I could feel myself teetering between arguing with Anthony that this must be wrong and breaking into tears myself. I had just seen Alice two days ago when we were all together mourning the first of our circle of friends to die. Those of us that were flying back out to Chicago had ridden together to the airport, and after Mills had caught another flight back to Austin, me and Alice had just hung out at an airport restaurant until my flight came up. Our mood had been sad because of Cassidy's funeral and everything that followed, but we were trying to make the most of the time we had left. Alice was telling me about his wedding and showing me pictures. I still felt guilty for not making it in person, but I had just started my new job at the time. Alice, like always, understood and worked to make me feel better about it. I told him some time about the girl I'd been dating. The relationship was still improving after six months, which was a record for me. Alice said that very thing, but then quirked an eyebrow at me. He asked me if I'd realized how I was looking at Mills the past couple of days, and I tried to play it off like he was joking, but I knew he wasn't. In that subtle way he had, he was trying to nudge me to consider if I was still in love with Millicent, like I had been when we were growing up. But my head was too full already from everything else, so I pushed the question away, gave him a hug, and headed to my flight. That was the last time I talked to Alice before something tore him apart. I hung up with Anthony after an hour, my throat raw and a feeling of exhaustion weighing down my every step as I went to the bedroom and collapsed onto the bed. I wanted to cry, but I couldn't, as though the engine of my heart was too busy burning through gallons of fear and guilt to allow even a drop of sadness into its chambers. I tried to sleep, but after a while I gave up on that as well and began to write this account. I need to get it all away from me. I realize that I've jumped in the middle 
of all this rather than the start. I'm tired and not thinking straight. Let me provide a bit of background, and then I'll talk about Cassidy's funeral and everything that happened after it. I had four best friends growing up. Ellis Macquarie, Millicent Davis, Thomas Wall, and Cassidy Friel. I think we were unique among many groups of childhood friends in that we all came together at the same time, Mrs. Weber's third grade classroom, and we were all equally close to each other. Aside from occasional childish arguments, we never fought with each other as we got older. We somehow managed to safely navigate the choppy hormonal scenes of two pairs of hetero guys and girls, and a third guy that was gravitating towards bi-curiosity. This is important, because as I start to question my memories about so many things, I keep returning to my idea of my friendships with the people closest to me. Ellis, who was always the kindest of us, Mills was the smartest, and kept the rest of us out of trouble on several occasions. Thomas, who was always so moody around others, but so light and happy when it came to just the five of us. And Cassidy, who was shy and sweet and, now I think, died terrified. I don't have any close family left. My father died when I was 15, and my mother doesn't like talking to me anymore. My old friends fall into two categories. College friends that I rarely keep in touch with beyond social media, and my best friends from my days in Stonebrook. It sounds strange, because we didn't meet at Stonebrook, which was our middle and high school before it was closed. We'd spent three years together at Jackson Elementary across town, and we were just as close then as we were later, but it was almost like our group identity wasn't fully cemented until we got into Stonebrook. Fifth grade rumor was that the place had been a small college 50 years earlier, and I don't think that was true. It was certainly an old building, and the shape and layout of the rooms retained faint traces of its earlier life. The building was shaped roughly like a hash mark, with two long, wide corridors intersected perpendicularly by two other long, wide corridors. The center square of those crisscrossed lines was filled by a small gymnasium that actually had a pool underneath its motorized floor, though the floor was kept locked and the pool had supposedly long been drained dry. But the age and uniqueness of the school, its quiet sense of history and mild creepiness, it had an effect on us. We stuck together even more than usual, making a few outside friends. We worked to get into the same classes, and the few times when one of us was by ourselves, the wait until the bell rang was interminable. It was during one of these isolated classes when I first thought about the school being haunted, and even now, having talked about everything this past weekend with the others, that's still one of my clear memories of our time at Stonebrook. Some small idea, an idle daydream, a simple what-if. What if the school was haunted by a ghost? I got the news about Cassidy's death last Wednesday. It was Thomas that called me, just as he had called the others. After I had moved away at 15, after Stonebrook was closed, the group had drifted apart. Thomas and Cassidy had stayed the closest, and sophomore year of college they had gotten married. In the ten years since, they had generally seemed happy the few times we talked or got together, but I knew they had ups and downs. Thomas told me on the phone that they had been 
legally separated for the past three months, but were trying to work things out for themselves and their little girl. And then Cassidy had gone missing one morning and was found five hours later in the groundskeeper's shed of the park across the street from their apartment. The police were investigating it as a potential homicide due to the strangeness of the death, but there were no leads. Thomas had been on duty at the hospital where he worked as a physician's assistant, so his alibi was solid. Worse was that she seemed to have drowned, despite being in a dry room with no clues as to how she got there. I couldn't get into Chicago until the morning of the funeral, but afterward we all went back to Thomas's house. They'd been living together during the separation, and as the four of us sat around his living room, I found myself looking out the window at the park across the street, wondering where the shed was and where my friend had been found. We'd been talking about Cassidy for the last three hours, telling funny stories and listening to Thomas go on emotional monologues about how much he loved her and how he failed her, which was always followed by us reassuring him that she loved him too, and that none of this was his fault. He would always glance at me at this point, and I would try to give him a comforting smile while hoping it was enough, because I didn't know what else to say. But as the evening wore on, you could feel the conversational momentum grinding to a halt. It was just past eight, but our tiredness and sadness were palpable. Still, I looked at Thomas, and I knew that his daughter was staying at his parents' house overnight, and I hated the thought of him being alone. So at the next lull, I suggested some or all of us spending the night with him. He looked like he was going to argue, but then he nodded with a wary look on his eyes. Yeah, I think I'd like that. For any of you that want to, though, I know some of you have rooms already paid for. Millicent grinned. My hotel looked like shit anyway. Ellis murmured in agreement, and I felt a slight buoyancy that I had found a small way to help. That's when I ruined everything. The Stonebrook Six are back together again. As soon as I said the words, I regretted them. I admit it as a joke, overly dramatic and silly proclamation to get a cheap laugh out of the others, but as soon as I said it, I realized that Cassidy was barely in the ground, and I was talking about us all being together. Thomas glared at me while Mills started shaking her head, her eyes wide. Why would you say that? Ellis's tone was more hurt than accusatory. Why the fuck would you say that, Alex? I felt like I could hardly breathe, my eyes roving between the three of them. Fuck, I, I'm so sorry. That was that was so stupid. I'm just not used to Cassidy being gone, and Thomas stood up, his expression hard. This isn't about Cassidy. Why would you call us the Stonebrook Six again? Is this some kind of fucking joke to you? Mills was on her feet now, putting herself between me and him. Tom, chill out. He doesn't remember. You know that. Thomas glanced down at her, his face reddening. Then how the fuck does he remember the Stonebrook Six? I was growing more confused and alarmed by the second. What? That's what we called ourselves. I remember we called ourselves that. The Stonebrook Six. It was a joke. 
Ellis had stood up now too, moving closer to me. Okay, Alex, that's right, sorta. But do you remember why it was a joke? I could feel tears stinging my eyes now. I didn't understand why everyone was so mad at me, especially if they weren't mad about me saying it was Cassidy gone. It, it was because there were only five of us. We were talking about nicknames one day and about how our group should have one as a joke. We talked about calling ourselves the Stonebrook Five for some reason, but ended up all agreeing that Stonebrook Six sounded cooler, like an old outlaw gang. So we called ourselves the Stonebrook Six, even though there were only five of us. Thomas took a step closer. Bullshit. Such bullshit. You know I've never fully believed your convenient I don't remember shit, but how the fuck are you pulling out shit like that and not remembering what it really was? Mills gave him a shove that didn't move him but got his attention. Fucking back off of him. He's not lying. He lost more than we did, so try to remember that. Mills' glare melted away as she turned back to look at me. Alex, it's not exactly like you think. A lot happened, and... Well, you blocked out most of the bad, I think. We don't understand how or why you don't remember, but you need to know that we believe you and we love you. Thomas snorted. <laughs> Typical. Alex makes Cassidy's funeral day about him. Ella shot him a dark look. Buttoned. We all loved Cassidy. You don't have the market cornered on missing her. Looking back down, he gave me a sad smile. Alex, what you were saying about how we started calling ourselves the Stonebrook Six? That never happened. We started calling ourselves the Stonebrook Six because of the professor. I felt a rush of fear running through my body at the name. My mouth went dry and I shot up like the room was on fire. No. What? No. Mills looked at Alice. You shouldn't have said anything. You should have left it alone. Alice shrugged. I didn't bring it up, but he has a right to know. Alex, do you remember the professor? I shook my head violently and started trying to move past them out of the room. No, I, I, I don't want to talk about this. Thomas caught me in a strong grip and pulled me into a bear hug that was equal parts angry and loving. We're going to talk about it, bro. I think it's time. Mills was yelling at him, but he went on. The professor was the sixth in the Stonebrook Six. It was that I shoved him hard enough that he lost his grip and went staggering back into a low coffee table, his arms pinwheeling as he tried to regain his balance before sitting down hard enough on the small table that one of the legs gave way and sent him sprawling onto the floor. For my part... I imagined I looked like a trapped animal. But that was okay, because it's exactly what it felt like. Mills had her hands raised as she stepped forward and touched my cheeks. Sweetie, it's okay. We should probably go ahead and talk about it a bit now, just so you're not confused anymore, is that okay? I still wanted to run, but her cool, smooth hands on my face were like a smoothing balm. I nodded reluctantly, looking down at Thomas. You okay, man? He stood up slowly and gave me a slight smile. <sighs> yeah, I'm sorry. No, I was just being an asshole. Are we cool? 
nodded. Sure, man. I'll replace that table. I'm just really freaked out at the moment. Mill stepped back and nodded. I know. So let's try talking it out. If you reach a point where you get too scared, we'll stop. Okay? Okay. I paused and then pushed my eyes going between Millicent and Ellis. So, who was the professor? Ellis was the one who answered. It was the ghost. The one that we made up. The one that hurt all those people. What follows is my best recollection of what Ellis told me that night. I want to be clear that before I start, I truly didn't remember anything more or different than what I would have told them or what I've written previously. And it wasn't like I just had a giant blank spot from age 10 to 15 or 20. I have memories, plenty of memories, of both my time at Stonebrook and what came after. It's just now I believe that I'm missing a great many things and that at least a few of those things I do remember never actually happened. That's the best and only explanation I have for my relative ignorance of our collective past. It scares me, at least in part because I now know that I've had one or more conversations with the rest of the six with my friends about me not remembering things at all or correctly. This was before they realized how deep-seated my block was and gave up trying out of some combination of frustration and fear that forcing me to remember would do me harm. So not only don't I remember the events themselves, I don't remember them trying to remind me of them. It makes me feel that my memory lapses go beyond shock or trauma, more like someone or something intentionally fucked with my head. Even now, going over what I'm about to relay in this writing, I don't really remember it, at least not well. It's like I saw a movie of a portion of my life, and now I have trouble distinguishing what I actually remember from my life and what I'm just remembering from the movie. When I finish writing this, I'm going to call Mills and see if she's okay. Again, below is my best recollection of one of the last times I got to talk to one of my best friends. Alex, I know you say you don't know what we're talking about, and I... We believe you. We do. But stuff like you mentioning the Stonebrook Six, your reaction when I mentioned the professor, I think you still have those memories in there somewhere and have just blocked them somehow. Or maybe they're being kept from you. Either way, I think it would be good for you, for all of us, if we explained a bit and see if it'll stick with you this time. See if you're ready. Now, as you know, we all transferred from Jackson Elementary to Stonebrook Middle at the start of the fifth grade. The building was weird and kind of spooky, and we all mainly hung out with each other. Between classes, we started up. Between classes, we started out meeting up at the big oak tree that stood at the edge of the bus drop-off parking lot. But by seventh grade, we were changing classes as much as the high school, and started running into older kids that were pissed that we were crowding their secret smoking spot behind the tree. We looked for another good hangout spot for a couple of weeks, but then Thomas and Cassidy found us a way into the lower rooms. You look a bit lost, so let me explain. 
The hallways of the school crisscrossed, with the vertical four halls being used for 5th through 8th grade, as well as special classrooms for things like music and clubs. The horizontal halls were used for 9th through 12th grade, and had been administrative offices and the teacher's lounge. But as we figured out over time, each of those halls had another floor below that wasn't connected to each other like the floors above. It gave each floor its own private basement, and while the rooms had been used for classes at some point in the building's past, by the time we got there, they were mainly for storage, or a secret hangout if you could find a door unlocked. The door to the basement of the 6th grade's hall didn't lock securely, and by the time October of our 7th grade year had rolled around, we were already hanging out down there regularly. It wasn't as bad as it sounds. There was electricity, and the space was surprisingly clean, though there was a certain air of decay and disuse that always hung out in the stale air. It was a spooky place, and the few times I was the first one to arrive, I had to fight the urge to go back upstairs until one of you got there. I think maybe that's what got us talking about ghosts. No, I interjected. I remember daydreaming in class about there being a ghost at the school. I was by myself and bored. I think I brought it up to the rest of you. Ellis frowned, glancing at Mills and Thomas. Well, that could be true. Either way, it doesn't matter who brought it up first. We were all talking about it, and we were all part of what came next. At first, it was just us swapping rumors and speculation. We had heard about the school as a way to pass time during breaks or lunch. Truth be told, most of it was fairly tame. It seemed the place had been a college at one point, but nothing bad had ever happened there that we could tell. No grisly murders or dark rituals, no crazy people or monsters. Of course, mundane fact didn't satisfy us for long. We would talk about the school being creepy, about maybe having seen something or heard something one time. We would talk about the school being creepy, about maybe having seen something or heard something one time. There would be passionate debates about how a place that old and creepy must be haunted by at least one ghost, despite the lack of any evidence to support it. Then we turned to talking about what such ghosts would look like. Cassidy's the one that came up with the idea that it was probably a dead soul of a former college professor. The professor, she suggested, had probably fallen in love with one of his students, and when his advances were rejected... He'd killed himself at the school, possibly in the very room we sat huddled in beneath 4th and 5th period. It was just a story, of course, and we all knew it, but stories have power. So does belief. I've been thinking a lot about that the last few days, and I think stories are living things. Whether you're telling the tale or hearing it, you feed it with emotion and thought, with imagination and belief, and it evolves and grows. In time, a story can take on a life of its own. Over the next few weeks, we added a great deal to the professor. It became kind of an informal story contest, where we would all take turns creating stories that either plumbed some chamber of ghosts or schools past, or reported on some more recent indication of the professor's continued presence at the school. Thomas was first. Thomas told us more details about how the professor was seen lurking around the halls of the college in the months following his death. The girl he had been in love with dropped out after his suicide, but returned the following quarter. 
She was one of the few women at the school at the time, and this, combined with her prior absence, caused her to redouble her efforts to catch up and surpass her peers. One night, she went to leave the school library. She found that she was locked in and all alone. Well, except for the professor. The next morning, they found her bruised and bloodied in a gibbering heap. She never returned to school, and people say she just died a few weeks later from some unknown malady. Mills added in how the building was actually built on the tribal grounds of Arakara, a Native American tribe that once lived in the area. Or, to be more accurate, she had added with dramatic flair a banished offshoot of the Arakara that had been shunned by the tribe for their extreme cruelty and dark magic practices. They'd use the location as a site for their black rituals, and when they were driven from the land, European immigrants found themselves drawn to the place as well. A village had grown up in the spot in the early 1800s, being a prosperous trade hub for local farmers and distant merchants for nearly 50 years. Then, during the height of the Civil War, a small band of travelers had come to town to find every man, woman, and child slaughtered. The initial reactions were to blame a rogue detachment of Confederate or Union soldiers, but closer examination showed that the townsfolks appeared to have all turned on one another until the last one died of wounds she'd inflicted on herself. It was another 30 years before anyone dared to build in the area again, but people have a short memory where there's money to be made. And by 1900, the current town had started growing in that direction, and soon the school was being built. Some say the same dark forces that plagued earlier generations caused the professor to commit suicide and may still stalk these halls today. Alice's tale was next. When they bought the closed-down college and started renovating it into the middle and high school, they found all these weird lower-floor hallways. Apparently, they'd been used for classes at one time, all except for the one we were meeting in. That one had been a lab the college had set aside for faculty to use, though only a couple ever did. One of those was named Arthur Chester, a chemist that was known for his obsessive devotion to his research and isolated lifestyle. When the school closed, everything was very chaotic, but they did try to make sure that everyone was out before they sealed everything up. They went into every underground chamber, calling out for people and checking for signs that someone was being left behind. But Arthur had taken to testing his compounds on himself and laid passed out in a dim corner of a back room. He never stirred, and they sealed him in with no idea at all. When he awoke, it was another two days before he knew he could leave, and the theory was that he suffocated himself with the gases from the concoction intended to blow the door off its hinges. All that's known for certain is that his face and hands were torn and broken from where he had frantically flung himself against the heavy metal door until his lungs or heart finally gave out. Next was Cassidy's story. A few years back, before we were at Stonebrook, one of the freshmen saw him moving in the woods near the school. They thought it was a deer at first, and they pointed it out to a friend, but the friend didn't see anything. Intrigued and wanting to prove their friend wrong, they tried to get their companion to go with them to the woods' edge, but they refused. Determined now, they set off by themselves while their friend went off to class, yelling a stern admission that the teacher was going to skin them alive for missing class. When the freshmen didn't come home that night, 
everyone began to search for her. It wasn't long before they zeroed in on her friend and what she might have seen. This led them to the woods, and while they had brought ten people and a pair of dogs to search for her, it was unnecessary. She was hanging thirty feet up in the branches of a large tree not far in along the main trail of the woods. Her skin had been flayed away and spread like ragged wings behind her, and her lipless mouth was held open by what they first took to be one of her own notebooks. However, on closer inspection, they saw it was actually an old essay book. Written on the inside cover was the name of the girl the professor had loved. These stories were told and retold over the course of several weeks, and every time that it would come to your turn, Alex, you would just pass, saying you were still working on yours. We didn't push you, but we were just starting to get tired of rehashing the same old material and for whatever reason, we didn't feel like we could move on to the new stories or something else entirely until you were finished. So we started telling the stories to others. I think we were all doing it on our own at first. I remember the first time I talked about it to any of you, about how I had told a couple of buddies in gym class about the professor. I was surprised to find you had all been doing the same thing. Stuff like that isn't uncommon, of course. Every school or town or group of more than five people have rumors and superstitions. Most of the time they have their time in the limelight and then they fade away. Some stick around long enough to become urban legends or folk tales. But when we started telling people about the professor, it spread quickly and more powerfully than any of us had expected. Part of it was we were all telling it like it was true. We'd taken to telling each other stories among ourselves, you included, so we were all practiced in telling details of the tales without stumbling or lacking confidence. Another thing was that even though we were all known to be friends, we were telling different people, who then spread it to others. Within a month, our versions of Professor stories have been told probably 50 times, it's not even counting the mutated versions, the spin-offs, the rip-offs, the straight-up new stories other people were creating out of some kind of strange drive, whether it was just an urge to be part of the current trend or something darker pushing them to do it. By Christmas, people were telling each other to watch out for the professor and don't go into the woods alone during the holiday. We thought it was hilarious and were more than a little proud that we had inadvertently created a school spirit, at least for a little while. We had kind of figured out it would die down back when we came back in January, but that was before Jenna Hastings went missing.